Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to today's Hill Briefing, Securing Economic Growth Through Trade Facilitation. Uh, it's featuring Simeon Diankoff from the World Bank and Dan Eikenson from the Cato Institute. I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. And before we get started with today's program, I just have a couple of quick things. First of all, if you're not already familiar with the Cato Handbook on Policy, it's a comprehensive guide to what Cato scholars think should be done about all variety of different policies. Uh, this covers international trade, of course, as well as foreign policy, entitlement reform, tax reform, um, civil liberties, energy policy, healthcare policy, and just on down the list. If you'd like a copy of that, uh, see me after the briefing, and I'd be happy to get a copy to you. Also, we have a daily e-newsletter from the Government Affairs Department at Cato, and uh, that is called Cato Today. You can sign up for it uh, with the conference staff outside of the room as you're leaving. Um, and that basically has new commentaries, um, policy analyses, blog highlights, podcasts, etc. And also on that uh, registration table, there are some handouts, and I want to speak very briefly about each of them because they're vital to understanding the full context of, of free trade and uh, a lot of the work that our uh, trade department at Cato does. Um, the first one is called While Doha Sleeps, Securing Economic Growth Through Trade Facilitation. That's by Dan Eikenson. And uh, that's really what the subject of today's briefing is all about. So I don't really need to go into it deeply here. Uh, another one is Leading the Way, How U.S. Trade Policy Can Overcome Doha's Failings. And that one talks about or makes the case for unilateral tariff liberalization here in the United States, arguing that we don't need other countries to uh, reduce their trade barriers in exchange for us to do so. Um, another one is Protection Without Protectionism, Reconciling Trade and Homeland Security. That title pretty much says it, but it's basically talking about the trade-offs between free and open international trade and the need to secure our borders, especially in port facilities. And it, it makes a, a compelling case that we can do both uh, without sacrificing the other. Uh, another shorter piece is called Trade Fears Are All Smoke, and that talks about how a lot of the fears that Americans have about trade and its impact upon domestic manufacturing, um, employment, um, living standards here in the United States, a lot of those fears are overblown and overhyped. And the final one that makes many of the same points is American workers are trading up, and that is uh, a shorter version of a policy analysis as well. So with that, let me introduce our first speaker. That's Daniel J. Eikenson. He is the Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S.-China trade issues, steel and textile trade policies, and anti-dumping reform. Eikenson has been involved in inter international trade since 1990. Before joining Cato in 2000, Eikenson was Director of International Trade Planning for an international accounting and business advisory firm. Before that, he co-founded the Library of International Trade Resources, a consulting firm providing interactive information access and international trade consulting. And before that, he was a trade policy and anti-dumping analyst at a few different international trade law practices in Washington, D.C. Eikenson is the author of many studies and articles on trade policy and is the co-author of the book Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law. He has appeared on the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, 
CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg TV, MSNBC, ABC News, and NPR. His articles have been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Times, the Detroit News, National Review Online, and elsewhere. Eikenson holds an MA in economics from the George Washington University. I give you Dan Eikenson. Thank you, Kurt. Thank, thanks, everybody, for, for coming. Great turnout. Sorry that you guys have to stand, but uh, that's a good sign for us. Um, Kurt filled you in a little bit about uh, Cato and the Center for Trade Policy Studies and what we're, what we're all about. But basically, our, our mission is to educate uh, policymakers and the public and the media about the benefits of, of free trade and, and the costs of protectionism. And I guess I should admit right here that we're really not doing a very good job, are we? Uh, the uh, polls tell us that Americans have soured on trade. Uh, and it's really, to me, it, it, it's, it's pretty evident why that is the case. Uh, it's because Americans are barraged nightly by reports on the news that uh, they're losing their jobs and the economy is imperiled by globalization and international trade. They hear these reports almost every night, and then an hour later the phone rings and it's a poll taker asking, how do you feel about trade? So I think uh, that has a lot to do with it. I think Congress, I think the presidential campaign and the rhetoric we've heard in the, uh, on the campaign trail, uh, and the media have helped to uh, instill these fears and perpetuate these fears. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how, how we got here. I think there's three myths that are persisting. And I just want to talk about this before I get into trade facilitation because it sort of puts it in context. Three myths that people hear about and that I think is reinforcing opposition, growing opposition to, opposition to trade, is that the U.S. manufacturing sector is in decline. Uh, I did a paper last year. There's been quite a lot of debate about it. Uh, U.S. manufacturing is not in decline. It's going through some transitions, but 2006 was a record for U.S. manufacturing in terms of output, value-added, revenues, profits, return on investment. 2007, record revenues, record exports, record imports. Um, profits tailed off a little bit in 2007 because costs are rising. Uh, but there are some cyclical problems facing uh, manufacturing right now, but it has nothing to do with, very little to do with, with international trade competition. In fact, trade has really been a boon to U.S. manufacturers over the past year, uh, over the past several years. The second is that the trade account, you hear about this every month when the, when the trade account numbers are, are published, uh, that the trade account is a scoreboard. Uh, we have a, a deficit, which means we're losing a trade. And we're losing a trade because our trade partners are cheating. And the cheating involves subsidization and unfair labor and dumping and intellectual property theft. Yeah, there's probably some uh, legitimacy to those gripes, but not to the extent that it explains our trade deficit. Uh, the trade balance is not a function of trade policy at all. It is a function of fiscal policy. It is a function of monetary policy, disparate patterns of savings and consumption between Americans and people in other countries. Um, we've written about that. There are papers about that, uh, so I won't go, go too into detail there. Um, the third myth is that we lack enforcement. We don't enforce our trade agreements. And if we only, only if we did, if we did enforce our agreements, problem one and problem two would go away. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, I think we do enforce our agreements. We don't. Uh, there, there aren't as many fireworks as some would like to see. There aren't as many incidences of, of American policymakers carrying cudgels and banging our trade partners on the head. Uh, but there's ongoing dialogue all the time. Uh, there have been plenty of cases brought in the WTO when negotiation doesn't lead to adequate resolution. Um, 
uh, under the Bush administration, there's actually been more anti-dumping cases brought than there were under the uh, Clinton administration. So I don't think uh, enforcement is really that big of an issue, but there is clearly a focus on that. Congress is moving toward that direction. I think when the 110th Congress came in, the period of accommodation and negotiation ended, uh, and the period of confrontation and enforcement began. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about what the U.S. Trade Representative's office is going to look like under a, an Obama presidency. Is it going to be, they're going to be like the Maytag repairman? Are they going to sit back and have nothing to do? Are they going to be a bunch of former customs heavies who just want to go out and enforce? Is it just going to be AFL-CIO and, and labor people who just want to go out and uh, impose new standards on agreements that exist? Um, I would say that the Bush administration is also complicit uh, in the, the perpetuation of these myths. Uh, early on, the Bush administration spoke about the benefits of imports. They spoke about Robert Zellick, the first USTR in this administration, spoke of turning every corner store in the United States into a duty-free shop. But that didn't resonate well, and he was sort of reined in because the model, you talk about trade in terms of export markets, you don't talk about the benefits of imports. And that is a major oversight. Um, Imports are actually the main benefit of trade. Uh, exports are the icing on the cake. So uh, I, the uh, Susan Schwab, the current USTR, goes around uh, pitching the pending bilateral trade agreements that we have by saying, with all the countries with whom we've negotiated bilateral trade agreements, we actually have a trade surplus when combined. And the implication there is that trade agreements, th th that's the metric of success, getting a trade surplus. And if you're convincing people that that's the metric of success, then it's not too hard to conclude that trade policy is failing overall. We have a nearly $1 trillion trade deficit. So the next president, whoever he may be, uh, needs to uh, focus on the benefits of trade, the real benefits, the benefits of imports. He needs to embrace it, uh, and, and, and the business community needs to support him. And we need to stop talking exclusively in, in mercantilist terms. We need to Trade policy advocacy needs to catch up with commercial reality. Freer trade is not about uh, it, it is is about expanding choices. Um, there is um, it's about giving people the right to purchase and transact with whomever they please. Um, the benefits of improved access to foreign markets uh, are, are are very widespread, and we we just need a new way to to, to pitch it. Um, it's really trade is about reducing the capacity of others to limit your choices and to coerce you into subsidizing their choices. In practical terms, we're talking about capitalizing on what's going on in the world, capitalizing on the broader global dis uh, division of labor. You know, globalization, transnational production processes, foreign direct investment, foreign uh, uh, just-in-time supply chains have transformed the international trade scene and trade advocacy has not really kept up with it. Trade advocacy is still rooted in this idea that it's our producers against their producers. Now, I don't think that was ever the proper way to look at trade uh, because countries consist of more than just producers and the, the, all the interests really need to be considered, but it's even more flawed today. Uh, first of all, it's becoming increasingly difficult to distinguish our producers from their producers uh, with equity tie-ups, foreign direct investment, uh, the fact that their producers employ our workers uh, and vice versa. The fact that production from companies that are headquartered in Tokyo uh, or Berlin uh, actually help the U.S. economy 
Uh, so it's not us versus them. It's an out, outmoded way of looking at, at trade. Trade is no longer about producers selling final goods uh, in this market or that market. Uh, in fact, most trade today is trade of intermediate goods. Uh, and we hear about the U.S. trade deficit. Uh, in 2006, I don't have the 2007 numbers, but I would cite those because I'm sure they're about the same. 2006, U.S. producers accounted for 55% of all U.S. imports. Um, in other words, they're importing raw materials and components and capital equipment to make their final products. Um, so import barriers, a weak currency, cumbersome customs procedures, which I'm going to talk about uh, uh, primarily, uh, and superfluous regulations and requirements all raise the cost of production. They all raise the cost of products. They stymie reinvestment and they curtail uh, job creation. I think people can intuitively appreciate the problems with bottlenecks. We've heard a lot about it with the, the recent oil price problems, gasoline price problems. We have bottlenecks in our refinery, uh, in the refinery portion of the supply chain. Uh, but for some reason, we haven't made that connection when it comes to trade barriers uh, and, and associating them with the rising costs and prices. As I get into, just before I launch into my discussion of trade facilitation, I wanted to read you a quote, which is in my paper. It's a bit long, but uh, I think it's very apt. Uh, it's from uh, Frederick Bastiat, who was a 19th century uh, French economist. And he writes, he, he, he knew, back then the situation was, was similar to today. He says, between Paris and Brussels, obstacles of many kinds exist. First of all, there is distance, which entails loss of time, and we must either submit to this ourselves or pay another to submit to it. Then come rivers, marshes, accidents, bad roads, which are so many difficulties to be surmounted. We succeed in building bridges and forming roads and making them smoother by pavements, iron rails, etc. But all this is costly, and the commodity must be made to bear the cost. Then there are robbers who infest the roads, and a body of police must be kept up, etc. Now, among these obstacles, there is one which we have ourselves set up, and at no little cost, between Brussels and Paris. There are men who lie in ambuscade along the frontier, armed to the teeth, and whose business it is to throw difficulties in the way of transporting merchandise from the one country to the other. They are called customs house officers, and they act in precisely the same way as ruts and bad roads. That is basically the essence of, of trade facilitation. Let me give Bastiat's quote some modern context, and I, I crib this from Simeon's work. Uh, a lot of my paper actually relied on Simeon's work. So. <laughs> uh, in the United States, it takes five days, on average, for a container to go through all the procedures to be imported and to make it to the customer's warehouse. It takes six days to do it in reverse, uh, in ex exporting, going through those same procedures. If we could reduce, if we could shave one day off both processes, uh, we would expect to see trade increase by $31 billion a year. It's based on a formula that, that comes from Simeon's work, and it's based on 2007 trade numbers. $31 billion is more than 50% more than what the USTR projects will come out of the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. So you know, think of all the, the negotiations, all the effort that has gone into the South Korea agreement. Uh, here's a very intuitive way to, to increase trade flows as well. Um, I think trade facilitation is a great topic for those of us who uh, advocate trade. Uh, it's a perfect area to emphasize the benefits, uh, the benefits of imports. Uh, trade facilitation drives home, for me, the, the metaphor of protectionism as corruption and as shoddy infrastructure, as inefficiency. And I think, it, to a certain extent, it puts a saleable spin on unilateral trade liberalization, 
unilateral liberalization still has sort of a negative undertone, particularly up here. Um, trade facilitation is... I like to use a hose metaphor. If, if, you, th if you think of uh, reducing tariffs as turning on the water spigot, and turning on the water spigot all the way is zero tariffs, uh, you're still not going to have a whole lot of trade flowing if that hose is all kinked up. Uh, so unkinking the hose and directing the hose to where you want to, to spread the water is what trade facilitation is. Um, the, the, the statistic I cited on the U.S. shows that trade facilitation improvements would do more to increase trade flows than a new round of tariff cuts would. Uh, several studies corroborate that, that, that figure, one of which found that for 168 out of 216 U.S. trade partners, uh, the transportation cost, shipping cost as a percentage of the value, was higher than the tariff incidence, tariff, uh, tariffs collected as a value, as a percentage of the value. Other researchers have made this point, uh, also made the point that when you think in terms of developing countries, uh, what is better for a country like Cambodia, which competes with China? And is it important for Cambodia to see new reductions in multilateral and, and MFN tariffs? where they're still on the same playing field with China, or it, does it make more sense for Cambodia to focus on improving its trade facilitation and reducing the amount of time it takes to ship relative to China? China is much more efficient relative to Cambodia. So that's one of the, the areas trade facilitation is beneficial. Uh, it also helps overcome what is called pre preference erosion, which is a term that uh, we use in trade and, and development circles. Uh, Countries that have preferences lose out, relatively lose those preferences as tariffs come down for everybody else. So if we focus on just uh, making our systems better, then uh, we, we can deal with that erosion. Uh, trade facilitation is uh, thought of as a, as a uh, developing country issue, and, and it really is to, to a large extent, but uh, there's a lot that rich countries can benefit, uh, uh, rich countries can benefit as well. There has been... Uh, Lots of progress already. Um, the, the WTO Secretariat, in fact, reports that the negotiations that have been going on, which are close to completion, for, for better or worse at this point, uh, would really only cost each country an average of about $5, five million to implement. Uh, we're talking about customs-oriented uh, procedures. So he said to multiply that by about 100, and you get 500, uh, uh, a total cost of about $500 uh, billion. Um, I think I lost my place here. Um, we, we've heard primarily about trade facilitation in the development context, and uh, Robert Guest, who used to write for The Economist, tells a story about being in Cameroon and taking a ride on a delivery truck. He wanted to see what the process was like to deliver beer from the port in Cameroon to the interior rainforest. It wasn't just beer, it was, it was Guinness. I just don't see why you'd want to drink Guinness in a hot rainforest, but... Uh, but he said that it was supposed to take three-quarters of a day, but it actually took four days because the truck was stopped 47 times uh, at ad hoc roadblocks where taxes were extorted and various fees were extorted. That is a problem endemic in a lot of poor countries. The World Bank uh, Doing Business Report, which Simeon is the author of, talks about this uh, Yemeni fisherman, Tariq, who uh, exports tuna fish. He can export fresh tuna to Germany for $5.20 a kilo, or frozen to Pakistan for a dollar ten a kilo, but because it takes on average 33 days to get products 
out of Yemen and through the, the, the red tape. He only exports 15% fresh to Germany and the rest to Pakistan at, a, at an opportunity cost of about $7 million. I don't know what 33-day-old fresh tuna tastes like, but uh, I'd, I'd rather be a Pakistani consumer in that case. <clears throat> um, we've heard problems in, in Haiti. La a couple months ago, there was a problem about uh, food rotting on ships that were docked in Port-au-Prince because the customs officials uh, were given, a, given uh, uh, instructions to guard against transshipment of drugs and contraband. So as a result, they just let everything sit, in the, sit uh, and rot on the, on the ships as, as people were actually eating dirt and twigs. That's the reports that, that I was reading. Trade facilitation happens in the rich countries as well. France is undergoing a huge privatization of its ports uh, because it's found that low productivity has led to it losing about 50% of its business to European rivals. In the United States, you know, we talk about trade facilitation and you often associate it with developing countries, but the United States has some issues itself. We have limited competition in freight rail service, which is a big issue uh, since, since 1980 when freight was deregulated. Uh, we've gone from 40 providers, class one providers, to seven. Many uh, towns and cities and manufacturing places in the Midwest are only served by one freight rail, uh, freight company. And that's a huge disadvantage. Uh, so there was some testimony given up here not too long ago that showed um, that it costs the same to ship from a, mid a Midwestern town to Georgia, which is 1,400 miles, as it does to ship from Western Europe to Georgia, uh, which is 5,000. So we, we, we need more competition in that, uh, that area. We also have the Jones Act, which has been on the books for decades. Jones Act prevents foreign shippers from serving more than one U.S. port. Uh, there's no cabotaging. If you go to the Port of New York, you can't go down to the Port of Baltimore. Um, that's, a, that's a huge problem that forces importers to use land transportation services when it might be more efficient to go uh, to stay on the water. We've got prohibitions against Mexican trucking. That was part of the NAFTA that was supposed to be eliminated a long time ago. We still have those. Those are very, very costly. Um, in, in Simeon's doing business report, the United States ranks 15th. Uh, which is uh, which is better than most countries. In fact, it's better than the OECD average. But that means there are 14 countries that are doing better than the United States, uh, which means there's a lot of room for improvement. And I'll, I'll try, I just I think I should probably just wrap this up here. But uh, there's also the Logistics Perceptions Index, which finds the U.S. ranked 14th, about the same. It's it's considered to be more comprehensive in the sense that there are more questions asked of the of the people involved uh, that that, re that report on the survey. Um, but the post-9-11 focus on security issues in the United States might be presenting a problem. I mean, it's, uh, we've had CTPAT, uh, we've had the uh, CSI, we've had the SAFE Act, we've had all sorts of uh, 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 new regulations put in place. Uh, and Customs is trying to work with the trade, trying to work with business, recognizing that it has to balance its mandate, its security mandate, and its trade facilitation mandate. But it's very hard for business to, to advise uh, customs on what is a good idea and what is a bad idea because they don't know what customs is doing with the data. There's now this new regulation called 10 plus 2. So importers and shippers are supposed to provide all sorts of documentation and all sorts of information about their cargo 24 hours in advance to customs. Uh, that's going to make it very costly. Uh, business is concerned that it's going to cause uh, containers to be delayed by two to five days. And if you use those numbers that I cited earlier uh, about 
one-day reduction in transportation uh, in both directions would add 31 billion, we're talking about huge costs to business. So I, I don't know what the solution is, uh, but I think that customs needs to be more willing to work with business, to bounce ideas off them so that uh, they're not just adding uh, layers of regulatory burdens that don't produce anything uh, substantive. It's hard to say. Do a, it's hard to do a cost-benefit analysis because you know what is the benefit of how do you measure the benefit of preventing a dirty bomb from going off in, in Manhattan? But there's there's a lot of room for uh, for, for negotiation and, and discussion between the two, and that I think is going to be the essence of focus of of of, of our focus on, on uh, facilitating trade here in the United States. Um, I have much more to say, but I've, I've talked too long. But uh, maybe in Q and A, I'll be able to get into some of these other issues. So, thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Our next speaker today is Simeon Diankoff. He is the creator of the Doing Business series, as we've heard several times by now. Um, in his dozen years at the World Bank, he has worked on regional trade agreements in North Africa enterprise restructuring and privatization in transition economies, corporate governance in East Asia, and regulatory reforms around the world. Simeon was a principal author of the World Development Report 2002. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and has published over 70 articles in academic journals, including Quarterly Journal of Economics, American Economic Review, Journal of Finance, Journal of Comparative Economics, and several others. Since 2004, after the Rose Revolution in the country of Georgia, Diankoff has visited the country frequently and worked with the government on reforming the business environment, particularly with Kaka Bendu Kizde, I probably butchered that, uh, the main architect of Georgia's economic reforms. Um, despite a declining population, restrictions on access to Russian markets, and concerns with the breakaway provinces of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, he and his associates have been extremely successful in reforming the business climate, as evidenced by growth in real GDP of about 10% in 2006 and 12% in 2007. Dr. Jankov. Thank you very much. The focus of my presentation would mostly be on uh, developing countries and trade facilitations in developing countries. But before going there, I thought, uh, thinking about Dan's presentation, to um, try and talk in brief about uh, an economic concept, which is loss aversion, and try to explain it simply, and then try to convince you that uh, actually, if you think about uh, the benefits of trade and whether the American population overall is actually negative on trade or not, I, I would be much more optimistic. I think actually that most Americans are quite positive on the benefits of international trade. It's just how the questions are asked to them, in part when they're asked, but also how they're asked. And also, what is the split between, uh, if you like, losers from trade, uh, trade openness, trade liberalizations, and the winners? And trade is one. There are a number of other examples, but trade uh, in the United States, in rich countries, is one of these great examples where the benefits are spread across the consumers. So many, basically, people benefit if, let's say, China produces low-cost uh, toys or 
some other things, while the losses are concentrated in a few producers. In the case of the U.S., mostly the Midwest uh, producers has traditionally been the, uh, uh, the case. Uh, there are, in fact, many other winners. If you think of the U.S., trade liberalization vis-a-vis the rest of the world, actually the whole service sector, if you travel around the world, uh, you would see that uh, you don't see many made-in-the-U.S. Uh, sort of basic manufacturers, but you do see the music around the world, the software around the world, the financial services around the world, many of the health services, the high-end the high uh, health services around the world, and many other service sectors, high-end service sectors, are basically all produced in the U.S., or at least originate from companies that uh, were produced uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, but I'll speak just for a few minutes on uh, loss aversion, and then we'll go to the main topic, which is trade facilitation in um, uh, in developing markets. And I'll make four points. So the first point is this concept of loss aversion. So what is loss aversion and why am I presenting it here to you? To, to you? I'm presenting it mainly to make the point that uh, trade liberalization in the U.S. is one of these great examples, as I just mentioned, where there are few uh, businesses uh, and their workers who may lose as a result of trade liberalization if basically their industry is going abroad. And there are some such, uh, su- some such examples. But there are many other industries that gain, and certainly the service industries uh, gain a lot more in the U.S., and of course the consumers gain. Now the problem, however, is that the consumers are not very well organized. So the fact that I'm very excited that I have cheap manufacturers, you know, I register it somewhere, but I don't go and actively lobby Congress and say, see, I'm very happy that, uh, you know, you've trade liberalized. Well, the people who lose, uh, who are the manufacturers of certain uh, particular goods, uh, they see that loss and they lobby themselves. And even though they represent a very small part of the population, they, they have, if you like, the incentive to, uh, to lobby a lot more than, uh, than the others. And this ties very nicely in this concept of... Uh, of uh, and then the question is, well, if I'm a congressperson and I know basic economics, and some Congress people seem to know basic economics, then I should know this loss-benefit analysis and should not care too much. But, of course, it doesn't quite work that way. Partly, of course, if I'm a congressperson from the uh, regions or, or states that are particularly uh, uh, hurt by, uh, by this. So there is a political, if you like, dimension of it. But there is also a policy dimension. Uh, and maybe for you uh, uh, here, that's something to think about and try to resolve it, actually, because it is a big issue. And the issue is the following, that uh, basically the psychology of people, politicians, as well as non-politicians, is to value uh, uh, basically benefits, if you like, much less than the possible losses. Um, and this is what's called loss aversion. So basically, if I offer you the way to present it is I'm offering you a bet. So basically, I say there are two options. Either you don't participate, so you gain zero from the beginning, or I offer you a bet where you 50% chance you gain $10 and 50% chance you lose $10, which, if you calculate it, is exactly equal to zero, basically, So because the probabilities are the same to lose or to win $10. And then you ask people, are you going to play or not? Now, in economic terms, it's equivalent, so you basically shouldn't care. So it should split 50-50. But already, about 65% say, I'm not playing, so I'm basically taking the zero, and only 35% say, I'm going to play. Um, and that gives you the loss aversion because they are afraid to lose the $10, even though the probability is exactly the same as winning. Then it becomes interesting if you start raising the stakes and say, okay, instead of playing $10, let's play $50. Are you going to play now? 
50% chance you win $50, 50% chance you lose $50. Suddenly only about 15% of the population is actually willing to play, even though in economic terms it's exactly the same. So the probability of you winning is about zero, meaning your return, expected return, is about zero. And if you go in that direction, you basically see that fewer and fewer people are willing to play. Why? Because people value, if you like, the probability of losing a lot more than the probability of, um, of winning. And you see it, and I'll finish uh, the example with this, you see it if you, have, uh, if you play on the stock market or if you have uh, uh, any stocks. Some things that have been puzzling for economists like me is when, when uh, the stock market starts going down, people pull out of losing stock, stocks much uh, with a significant delay. Even though it's obvious that, or in most cases, it's obvious that the stock market would be, doing, uh, would be going down. Why? Because, again, they're afraid, basically, to record a loss. While the opposite happens if the stock market is going up, people basically trade a lot faster because, uh, because they see the, the benefits. So this issue of loss aversion is, exists in many places, but it exists especially in trade policy along the lines of what, uh, of what I suggested. And it's a big policy issue of how to resolve it. In some sense, the obvious way to resolve it is to say, okay, so the losses are concentrated, let's say, in Ohio, in Michigan, in this kind of places. So, so if I were the policymaker, as an economist, I would say, so you want to create a policy where basically you offer to these people the chance to basically get somehow subsidized condos in Florida and just move them there. So they may lose their jobs in uh, Michigan or Ohio, but if you offer them basically some repayment, which is equivalent in their mind of what they're losing, it would work out. But nobody has quite come up with such a, such a repayment scheme. And as a result, the aversion to trade, uh, even though it comes from very few people or very few businesses, you hear it in the media a lot more than the benefits of trade. And the benefits are, are, are many. I hope that I have not confused you with this example. It has little to do with the rest of my presentation. But I just wanted to make this point that for you thinking about policy, this is actually a great uh, puzzle, if you like, because uh, if you put any economic sense in what's happening on trade uh, policy debate, basically it makes no sense. Um, but then some of the politics are very regionalized, so some states lose a lot more than others. Um, and the states that gain don't complain and don't lobby as much, while the, the businesses or states that lose lobby a lot more. Why? Because of the loss aversion that... Uh, that I alluded to. So then shift to the topic, which is really the topic that uh, I work, uh, I, I'm uh, mostly uh, an expert in, which is uh, trade reform and trade facilitation in, uh, in uh, developing countries. And there I'd like to make three related points. One point, which is well understood by, uh, by certainly the current uh, US administration, is that if you think of any countries around the world, let's say over the last 50 years, in fact, it stretches for 100, 200 years and so on, and ask which countries have managed in a short period of time to go from poor to not poor, regardless of how you measure uh, poverty. There is one stri striking characteristic of these uh, countries. Well, there are actually two patterns. One is if you suddenly had oil, uh, um, but not many countries have oil. And the other one, which is very consistent across uh, countries, is basically through trade. If you suddenly opened up and somehow managed to export a lot. So if you go to the 40s, 50s, you basically see Japan, 
uh, growing much through exports. Uh, then you see some of the West European countries, Germany certainly uh, in the 50s and 60s. Then you see Korea, Malaysia, all of the East Asians doing that. You see in the last 15 years a lot of the East Europeans growing very fast through, um, uh, through trade. And if you ask the question, are there non-oil producers and non-high export countries that grow fast? The answer is actually no. There isn't a single case of a country that we know so far that somehow has grown without basically the benefit of, uh, of, uh, of trade openness, of trade liberalization. So once you get to that point, uh, you get to some uh, consensus, and as I said, at least the current administration has this consensus that we need to help developing countries export more. Uh, not only them export, us export to them and so on, but basically trade liberalization in the world is a good uh, thing because it's the one thing that economies can mostly agree on helps developing countries uh, grow. And then the question is how to do it. And then that gets to this uh, discussion that uh, Dan had. Well, you can it, do it sort of through the Doha round, um, and there are some benefits to that, or in general through multilateral uh, um, uh, trade negotiations. I myself am actually not such a big fan of multilateral negotiations, but this is kind of beside the point now. Um, Secondly, you can do it through regional agreements or, or bilateral free trade agreements like the U.S., for example, has done with the Central uh, American countries over the last uh, few years and I think has done quite successfully. There are some other agreements like with South Korea that you wonder was the point there, but, uh, but there are a number of regional agreements that the U.S. has had, Europeans have had, that I would argue have done tremendous uh, uh, improvement. Uh, in the countries themselves, in the developing countries um, uh, uh, themselves. And then there is the broad topic of trade facilitation. And Dan already mentioned some, uh, some uh, numbers, mostly among rich countries, that on average it takes about five days to um, uh, basically deal with all the documentation, paperwork, and so on to export from the U.S. to somewhere else. But if you go to developing countries, and uh, my favorite are some of the uh, African countries, like from Chad, for example, it takes about 75 days. And this excludes, I'd like to mention, Dan didn't make it quite clear, this excludes the actual transport. So it does not count the fact that it's slow to transport. It, it, it just accounts all the bureaucratic procedures, the tax authority, customs, all the other sort of licenses that you need to get to, uh, uh, bank accounts, uh, bank drafts, and so on. So it takes about two and a half months, basically, to uh, just to be ready to export from Chad. But maybe Chad being in Central uh, Africa is a more difficult case. But in Burkina Faso, it takes about 40 days. In Mozambique, it takes about 45 days, and so on. And, and Mozambique has a port. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's not a landlocked country. And if you look in, uh, in Africa as a whole, I think the average is about 42 days just to prepare everything that you need to do in order to be able to, um, uh, to, to export. And then you get to this uh, uh, question, which is relevant for growth, as I mentioned, but is also relevant, and this is my final point, uh, in terms of the current discussion on food price increases and so on. And the discussion roughly goes like this. So Africa doesn't have actually many of the grains. So Africa produces relatively little sort of wheat, uh, rice, and so on. Most of the agricultural exports are, are uh, indifferent uh, and more spoilable, if you like, uh, uh, type of uh, products. There's some meat. There are a lot of uh, uh, vegetables, fruit, and, uh, and so on. Well, one issue with that, uh, if you would like to export it, is that it doesn't have much of a shelf life. In fact, the shelf life of, life of most fruit and vegetables is about two to three weeks if you have refrigeration. 
so without refrigeration, you can imagine what happens to bananas in two or three days. But let's say with refrigeration, it's two to three weeks. Well, um, suppose, however, that you're in Mozambique or in Burkina or Chad, and it takes you already 60, 40 days to just to go through the documentation. You're clearly not going to be able to export, right? Because even if you're very efficient in all of this, it still would spoil by the time that you're ready to, uh, to export. And this is what trade facilitation really is about, to try to make it uh, both for administrative reform as well as for some infrastructure reform so that the ability of people to uh, produce and then export is not somehow curtailed by uh, the fact that uh, their government is too um, corrupt and cannot invest in infrastructure or too inefficient and has too many procedures to uh, in front of, uh, of uh, exporters. And the reason that this is relevant for food price increase is one of the questions that has been absent largely from the US media, but is actually very prevalent in the European media. I just came back this morning from Europe. And certainly in the Africa media is that some African countries actually have a food surplus, and some have a very large food deficit. So the question is, why don't they trade among each other? And the answer is because they cannot, because it takes, they don't have the infrastructure and they don't have the trade facilitation uh, to do so. So if you export from Mozambique, let's say, to Lesotho, which is not that far, it actually takes you about 30 days. And in 30 days, your product is already, um, is already spoiled. So a lot, of, a lot of the food crisis, if you like, or the food uh, price increases have to do, in Africa at least, with the inability of countries to export to their neighbors or to a country that's 500 uh, kilometers or, or miles uh, away from them. And if we manage to resolve that, I think a lot of these uh, food crisis issues, but more generally growth issues, would, uh, would, uh, would disappear. And I'll just finish with one example of... Um, of a good policy, uh, a successful U.S. policy, at least in my case, in the, in the case of trade and trade facilitation, which is the free trade agreements with Central America. They're called, I think, something else. There is an Andean agreement and some other agreement I forget, but basically several countries in Central America now are the beneficiaries, and hopefully Colombia will be soon, of free trade agreements with the U.S. And if you look at these countries, you observe that trade is increasing, but you actually observe, or at least we do in the Doing Business Report, one remarkable phenomenon that they're reforming customs, so trade facilitation at customs is becoming much better, but they're actually reforming infrastructure in the country itself, they're reforming tax authorities, business registration authorities, and so on, to make it much faster, basically, to make trade facilitation much faster. That's not in the free trade agreement. So if you read in the free trade agreement, it nowhere says, you know, you should improve your business registration. But the benefits of trade are such that countries themselves realize we need to do that to fully benefit from the free trade agreement. And uh, in the Doing Business uh, report, I have a few copies with me, you can read how a number of the countries that have gained uh, the free trade agreements with the U.S. in a short period of time have managed to become major exporters, not just to the U.S., actually also to Europe, of some things that previously either they did not produce much or actually in, uh, in some cases like Peru or asparagus is an interesting story for me, did not produce at all. So within two or three years, Peru has become, I think, the second largest exporter in the world of asparagus after China, curiously, uh, starting from zero about two or three uh, years ago. And that's possible, remember asparagus, and I'll finish with this, is that it's paused in about five days. So basically, unless you manage to export it in before five days, ideally two days, it's not worth producing. Well, before the free tra trade agreement, it took them about 14 to 16 days to be able to go through everything. So clearly, they could not export asparagus to the US. 
Now they can, and not only to here, but to Germany and, uh, and so on. And this is a reform that certainly started with the free trade agreement, but actually the Peruvian government went much further and reformed even beyond what the text of the agreement was. Uh, so to, to summarize, I think that trade facilitation itself is a good thing to, to pursue with either bilateral, unilateral, or multilateral um, ways. But in Central America, the U.S. government or the policies of the U.S. government have been very successful in uh, both uh, encouraging countries and then getting countries to encourage themselves, if you like, to get the full benefits of trade liberalization. Thank you.